How many of you are people watchers? So, okay, it's not just, it's not just me. I didn't know if I had, like, this quirk, because um, I, I, I first noticed this in, in, like, in my family. I, I, I don't know why I grew up in a family where, where I just noticed my parents watch people. My mom, in particular, I can remember so many times when she was uh, just, I was just with her, and I, I just noticed her staring at people, and I'm like, Mom, don't stare at people. And she says, I can't help it. They're so interesting. And that is so true. I mean, people really are... Interesting, they have all kinds of idiosyncrasies. I don't know why I didn't get any of them, but everybody else <laughs> just is kind of weird in one way or another, you know? And, um, and Robin also grew up in a people-watching family. Her parents, I didn't find this out until after we were married, but her parents used to go to the mall together, and they would buy popcorn and not go to a movie, but sit on a bench in the mall just to watch people going past. And they, for them, it was like more entertaining than going to a movie, uh, just amazing. And, and um, of course, that interest in people watching kind of rubbed off on us. Um, both Robin and I find people fascinating, and we do have to fight the temptation to just stop and stare. And you know who I find most fascinating to watch? Old people. I'm not one of them yet. I'm still middle-aged, but I'll tell you, those that are older than me, um, you know, pe- people that are senior citizens, people that are in that are 70s and 80s, I love watching them because so much of what they say and, and so much of what they do teach really important lessons about life. I think more than anybody else, older people bear the marks of the choices that they have made in life. Like their words, their memories, sometimes even their bodies reveal the long-term effects of living life a certain way. Uh, You can tell what it's like uh, in the long run, whether it's worth it to live by particular priorities, just by by meeting somebody who's lived by those priorities, who's pursued the same things that you're pursuing. So uh, if you want to know whether or not it's worth it to live for money, all you have to do is find an older person who did that and listen to them. They'll tell you whether it's worth it. If you want to know how your life's going to turn out, if you make your career the most important thing in your life, you just have to find a retired person and ask them whether that was a pursuit that was, that was worth it for them. Find somebody who was just career-driven, and you'll learn a lot. You wonder, is it really worth it to live my life for sensual pleasure? Find, find somebody in a retirement home who did that, and, and you'll get an education. And if you want to know how people who devote their lives to knowing and following Jesus, really, I think reading the book of 1 John will help you to do that. You know, we've been doing this now for a little over three months, and during that time, one of the things that we've been doing is we've been observing the oldest disciple in the Bible. Most of you know by now that the Apostle John who wrote this letter was probably in his mid-80s when he wrote it. He'd been a Christian for about 60 years. Well, what happens to a person when they walk with the Lord for that long? I have to confess that I haven't just been studying 1 John during these past few months. I've been studying John. And what I have seen in him is deeply encouraging to me. This letter confirms to me that people who walk with Jesus become like Jesus. Now, I know the Bible tells me that. There's a general principle in Proverbs 13, 20. It says, 
Um, walk with the wise, and you will become wise. And then 2 Corinthians 3 applies that principle to our relationship with Jesus. There the Apostle Paul says that as we gaze at the glory of Jesus, that we are being transformed. The word in Greek is like metamorphosed. We are being metamorphosed. We are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. So it doesn't happen instantly, but eventually those who walk with Jesus do become like Jesus. At least in theory they do. But does that really happen? Well, John is the perfect guinea pig because, remember, he was Christ's closest friend. He was the disciple that Jesus loved in a special way. And then even after Jesus returned to heaven, John continued to experience intimacy with him because Jesus sent his Holy Spirit into John's heart. And, and he, so he walked with Jesus for longer than many of us have been alive. What effects did that have on him? Well, actually, it had the effects that 2 Corinthians 3 said it would have on him. John was transformed into the image of Christ. Let me tell you how I know that. First, more than any other New Testament writer, John's teachings mirror the teachings of Jesus. If you question that, just go back and read the Gospel of John, and you will see that most of what John has taught us in this book sounds an awful lot like what Jesus taught. I mean, John was a guy who really did have the mind of Christ. But more than that, he had the character of Christ. He was like Jesus, not just in what he taught, but also how he taught it. You remember what people said about Jesus? They said that he taught as one who had, what? Authority. Why did they say that about him? Well, it's because Jesus, you know, taught with clarity, with certainty. He didn't beat around the bush. Jesus never said, of course, that's just my opinion. No, he said, truly, truly, I say to you. And then he just laid it out there, simply, clearly, unapologetically, authoritatively. That was Jesus' style. And that's John's style. Forty-one times in the five short chapters of this book, he has used the word know, K-N-O-W. He uses that word more than any other New Testament writer. And never once does he use the word guess. He never says, I could be wrong, or it's not quite that simple, or it all depends on the circumstances. Others waffle, but John just tells it like it is. He speaks with Christ-like clarity and certainty. But there's something else about John's teaching that also resembles Jesus. He has a way of speaking the truth in love. The Gospel of John says that Jesus Christ came from the Father full of grace and truth. His words were powerful, but they were never malicious. They were always motivated by love. Have you noticed, as we've studied this book, that John has the same heart? He's the only person in in the New Testament, other than Jesus, to use the affectionate term, dear children. That's what Jesus called his disciples. And seven times in this letter, That's what John calls his readers. The final time is in the very last sentence. You see it there? Chapter 5, verse 21. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. There's an affection there. 
takes the sting out of some very straightforward truth. Where did that affection come from? Because I know it wasn't in John's natural character. Remember when he was a young man, he was called a son of thunder. His nature was to be kind of harsh. But now as an old man, he has such a tender heart. Why? Well, he's been walking with Jesus for 60 years. And people who walk with Jesus become like Jesus. Now, there's one more characteristic of people who walk with Jesus that is kind of camouflaged in the last few verses of chapter 5. And I just can't wait to help you to see it. But first, we have to focus on the details of what John is saying in this last paragraph because he squeezes into it three important truths that he wants to make sure that his readers never forget. Now, throughout the last half of chapter 5, John has been reminding us of things that we can know for sure. We learned from verse 13 that we can know for a fact that those who believe in the name of Jesus, the Son of God, have eternal life. We don't have to be uncertain about our salvation. And then John told us in verse 15 that we can know for a fact that when we pray according to God's will, He is going to give us what we ask for. So we can pray with the certainty that God is ready and willing to respond. Now to the list of things that we can know for sure, John is about to add three more certainties. First, we can know for a fact that true Christians do not live a sin-saturated life. Look at what John says in verse 18. We know that Anyone born of God, now stop there, who, who is it that's born of God? Well, we are, back in chapter 5, verse 1, John said that everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. So we know that John is talking about Christians. He's talking about everyone who has genuine faith that Jesus is the Messiah. And what does John say about those who are true Christians here in verse 18? He says, we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The New American Standard Bible has a more literal and thus more frightening translation. We know that no one who is born of God sins. Wow! That almost makes it sound like John's saying that true Christians never ever sin. Is that what he's saying? Well, if he is, he's contradicting himself because... He made it very clear back in chapter 1 that true Christians do sin. Go back just a few pages and look at this in chapter 1, beginning with verse 8. Just as a reminder, verse 8 of chapter 1, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He, God, is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, (coughs) and his word is not in us. And then chapter 2, verse 1, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. See, John has made it very, very clear to us that 
But we all sin. We all do things that we know God doesn't want us to do. We don't do things that we know he wants us to do. But when we sin, Jesus defends us before God, not because we're innocent, but because the penalty for our sin has already been paid by him for us on the cross. Do Christians sin? Yes, of course we sin. What John's saying in chapter 5, and you can go back there now, is, is, is not that we never sin. What he's saying is that sin is the exception rather than the norm in a true Christian's life. In, in verse 18 of chapter 5, he uses a verb tense that often refers to ongoing activity, to, to continuous action. Not to a one-time event. That's why the New International Version says that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. It's why the New Living Translation says, we know that those who have become part of God's family do not make a practice of sinning. John's saying the same thing here that he's been saying in many different ways throughout the book. He's really just telling us what Jesus himself taught very clearly. A tree is recognized by its fruit. Back in chapter 3, verse 9, John said it this way, No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they've been born of God. He says, it just makes sense that if if the seed of God's Spirit has been planted in your life, then then your life is going to produce the fruit of the Spirit. Not perfectly, but progressively. So if over a long period of time, Uh, the predominant fruit of a person's life is sin, that is proof positive that that person is not born of God. There are some teachers that are afraid to say that. John's not one of them. He says it very clearly and with, with authority. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. And then John gives a second reason why that can't happen. Remember he said back in chapter 3, it can't happen because the Spirit of God is in the Christian's life. He's going to produce righteous fruit, not sinful fruit. And now he says in verse 18 of chapter 5, the one who was born of God keeps them safe and the evil one cannot harm them. Who's the one born of God that John's now talking about? Well, now he's talking about Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, the, the firstborn of God's children. He's saying that Jesus keeps us safe, that Jesus protects us from the devil who would like nothing more than to manipulate us to behave like him in continual sin. John says Satan cannot make you sin because you're protected from Satan by Christ. His spirit is in you. Jesus is in front of you between you and the evil one. It's kind of a picture of Satan being like the school bully, you know, the sixth grader. We're the second graders, right? And we're afraid of the school bully, except for the fact that we have a big brother who's in middle school, and he can take the school bully. And so Satan's the school bully, Jesus is the big brother, we're protected uh, from the bully by our brother. It reminds me of when I was in elementary school, we were, I was out in my um, yard one day playing with my big brother. Mike, who's a year older than me, and another guy by the name of Pierre. We were all in elementary school, and um, Pierre kind of thought he was a really good athlete. And it was trash day, so the trash cans were out. And, 
And he, he said, I'd like to, I said, I'm going to challenge you guys to a jumping contest. We're all going to jump over the trash can. So Mike and I said, okay, let's do that. So we put the trash can on the grass, and we took turns jumping over the trash can. Mike first, cleared it with no problem. Me second, cleared it with no problem. Pierre third, tripped over the trash can and fell flat on his face. And I found that humorous. So I kind of started to chuckle, and then all of a sudden, Pierre was on top of me. I was down on the ground, and he was choking me because I had laughed at him for not making it over the trash can. And, and my big brother sprang into action. No, he did not lift Pierre off of me. He ran into the house and said, Mom, Pierre's choking Greg. Pierre's choking Greg. And my mom came out and lifted Pierre off of me. So my brother wasn't quite as heroic, you know, as he could have been. But, you know, it was because he was there that Pierre could not harm me. Well, Jesus is our big brother who protects us from Satan, who is the bully. When that bully takes aim at us, Jesus doesn't run to God the Father and ask for help. He steps right in front of us. He protects us from the evil one. The devil cannot harm us, at least in the sense that he cannot cause us to sin. To say the devil made me do it is theologically inaccurate. He can't do that. He can tempt us. He can dangle the bait out in front of us and and, and make us want to step around Jesus and take the bait. But he can't seize us against our will. And even if we do yield to the devil's enticements for a time, Jesus will not let us continue to sin. He has all kinds of different ways to get us back in line. So as, as Christians, we don't have to fear that we might fall helplessly and hopelessly into sin. Now, of course, we need to be vigilant about avoiding sin. James 1.27 says that it's our responsibility to keep ourselves from being polluted by the world. But isn't it encouraging to know that Jesus himself is committed to protecting us and to keep us from falling into sin? John says that we can be sure that Jesus is doing that for us. And then the second thing he wants us to know for a fact is this. Brace yourself. Only Christians are children of God. Look at what John says in verse 19. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. How's that for political incorrectness? I mean, few Christians have the guts to say that, but John, like Jesus, spoke the truth without being intimidated by others. Notice that he says there are only two kinds of people in the world. There are children of God and there are slaves of Satan. The Gospel of John says that all who receive Christ, all who believe in his name, become children of God. John's been telling us throughout this letter that the claim to be a child of God is backed up by a lifestyle of love for other Christians and obedience to God's commands. So if we put our faith in Jesus... And if that faith over time produces positive changes in our behavior, we can know for sure that we are children of God. But we can know with equal certainty that every person in this world who does not believe in Jesus is under the influence of the devil. Literally, John says that the whole world lies in the evil one. That word lie is the same word that is used of baby Jesus lying in the manger. The devil 
cannot so much as touch us, but those who do not follow Christ lie in Satan's arms as helpless as a baby. It's perfectly consistent with what Paul said in Ephesians 2. There he said that before we believed in Jesus, we followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Who's that spirit? It's the devil. Did you know that he is as much at work in the lives of non-Christians as the Holy Spirit is at work in the lives of Christians? It's really a sobering truth because we have, we have this tendency to think that there are kind of like three categories of people. There are those who follow Christ on one end. There are those who reject Christ on the other end. And in the middle are a whole bunch of people that are just undecided. No. Everybody is either a child of God or they're a slave of Satan. Every single person in the world is energized by one of two supernatural spirits. Either the Spirit of God or the devil himself. So how do you break free from slavery to Satan? How do you open your life up to the Spirit of God? It's very simple. You just have to believe in Jesus. Gospel of John says, To all who received Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And here in 1 John 5, verse 1, says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Okay, so then why do some people believe in Jesus when others don't? Why are we Christians when there are so many others around us who aren't? Is it because we're more intelligent or or more spiritual or more righteous than they are? (laughs) Absolutely not. Look at verse 20. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. See, John says that the reason why we get it and other people don't is because Jesus decided that despite our unworthiness, he would graciously give us the spiritual IQ to get it. We know that Jesus is the one who opened our minds to the truth. He has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. That fact should purge our hearts of every trace of spiritual pride. What John says here is exactly the same thing that Jesus said in Matthew 11. No one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. The only reason why We know God is because Jesus performed a miracle on us. We were blind, spiritually speaking, until he gave us sight. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 that the God of this age, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. But God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So we have no basis for arrogance. For some reason that has absolutely nothing to do with our merit and everything to do with his mercy, Jesus touched our eyes, gave us the ability to see. It's the only reason why we know God. 
It's interesting that John uses a different word for know when he talks about our knowledge of God. When he says, we know him who is true, he uses a word that means to know personally, to know experientially. There's another word that means to know for a fact. This is a word that means to know relationally. We don't just know truth about God, we know God. In fact, we're so intimate with him that John says in the last part of verse 20 that we are in him who is true. By being in his son, Jesus Christ. And then this this sentence, he, Jesus, is the true God and eternal life. That's more than just a theological statement. Of course, it's, we know Jesus is the true God. We know that he is the one who gives eternal life. But John doesn't say that Jesus gives life. John says that Jesus is life. It's the very same thing that he said about Jesus in the first two verses of this book. Jesus is eternal life. Not just eternal in the sense of duration, but also in the sense of quality. Jesus is real life. To know Jesus is to really live. And it's with that statement that I imagine John expected to finish this letter. Here is a man who has walked with Jesus for 60 years. And his commentary on those six decades can be boiled down to this. Jesus is life. Is it worth it to pursue intimacy with Jesus? Oh yes, this old man says, indescribably so. Now, this is pure speculation, but what I imagine happened at this point is that John put down his pen, thinking he was done. And then he just sat there and reminisced. He thought about the adventure and the joy that he had experienced by walking with Jesus for all those years And he felt totally satisfied. He couldn't imagine life without Jesus. And then, maybe, his mind drifted to his younger friends who who hadn't been walking with Jesus for, for long enough to fully grasp the incomparable sweetness of knowing him. These were people very much like us. They were Christians living in a world that was trying to pull them in a thousand different directions. They said that Jesus was their God, but they were so tempted to pursue other things. Or if I may say it the way I think John would say it, they were tempted to serve lesser gods. Idols, if you will. Which in our context makes me think of the idol of money. The idol of career. The idol of comfort. The idol of recreation the idol of sensuality, the idol of family, maybe even the idol of a Jesus who is more to our liking than the real Jesus. And as he imagines his friends devoting themselves to these gods, his joy, the joy of having devoted himself to Jesus, is clouded by the sadness of knowing that other Christians might settle for so much less. And as his heart wells up with fatherly affection, he picks that pen back up and he adds one final plea. Dear children, 
Keep yourselves from idols. It seems like a strange way to end the letter. Unless you remember that John has been experiencing something so much better for so long. He has been walking with Jesus. And people who walk with Jesus can't imagine life without Jesus. That's why his last word to us is, keep yourself from idols. Keep yourselves from substitute gods. Keep yourselves from those things that will not satisfy your soul. Keep yourselves from those things that will cause you to one day look back on your life with bitter regret. Dear children, don't settle for anything less than Jesus. Lee Strobel, in his book, A Case for Faith, writes about an interview that he conducted with a man by the name of Charles Templeton. When Templeton was a young man, he was a friend of Billy Graham. In fact, uh, some people expected him, rather than Graham, to become the next great evangelist. And at about the same time in their lives, when they were young men, both Billy Graham and Charles Templeton experienced a crisis of faith. They both struggled with unanswered questions and, and nagging doubts. Ultimately, Graham decided to keep following Jesus by faith, even though he could not get all of his questions answered. And Charles Templeton made the opposite choice. He decided to quit, to defect from the faith. And we know what happened to Billy Graham, but whatever happened to Charles Templeton? That's what Lee Strobel wanted to find out. So he tracked him down. At this point, Templeton was 80-some years old, and he explained to Strobel in very thoughtful and rational words why he no longer believed in God. And then Lee Strobel asked him, How do you assess Jesus? Listen to what he writes in his book. Templeton's body language softened. It was as if he suddenly felt relaxed and comfortable in talking about an old and dear friend. He was, Templeton began, the greatest human being who has ever lived. I was taken aback. You sound like you really care about him, I said. Well, yes. He's the most important thing in my life, came his reply. I, 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 he stuttered, searching for the right word. I know it may sound strange, but I have to say, I adore him. Abruptly, Templeton cut short his thoughts. There was a pause. He glanced up. He looked across the room. He seemed to want to focus anywhere but on me. He was suddenly self-conscious, almost embarrassed apparently uncertain whether he should continue. He sighed. But no, he said slowly. In my view, and now there was a catch in his voice, he inhaled deeply to try to stop from crying. But as he turned toward me, I watched as tears flooded his eyes. In my view, he struggled to say, He is the most important human being who has ever existed. His voice cracking, he uttered the words I never expected to hear him say. And if I may put it this way, I miss him. With that, he broke down sobbing. Charles Templeton was a man about John's age who had the opportunity to walk with Jesus And he said no. 
And at the end of his life, he looked back with an aching sense of loss. Sometime after I read The Case for Faith, I came across an article by a man who found himself sitting next to Billy Graham at a benefit dinner. And he couldn't help but ask him, Mr. Graham, um, what have you enjoyed the most in your many years of ministry? Has it, has it been the influence you've had on presidents and heads of state? And he was about to say, has it been preaching to throngs around the world? But Billy Graham interrupted him. He said very softly, beyond a doubt, it has been my fellowship with the Lord. To be able to talk with him, to hear from him, and to have his guidance and presence in my life has been my greatest joy. Three old men looking back on life. Two who walked with Jesus and one who settled for less. Two who oozed joy and one who broke down in tears. Friends, let's learn from these men. Jesus is life. Do not settle for anything less.